so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Karen Swallow-Prior, who's a research professor of English as well as Christianity and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary and the editor of a new series of guides to classical works of literature with B&H. Today, we talk about the importance of reading older books and the value of literature. Dr. Pryor is the author of Booked, Literature and the Soul of Me, Fierce Convictions, The Extraordinary Life of Hannah Moore, and On Reading Well, Finding the Good Life Through Great Books. She's also the co-editor of Cultural Engagement, a crash course on contemporary issues with Zondervan, and has contributed to a number of other books. Her writing has appeared at Christianity Today, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, First Things, Vox, The Gospel Coalition, and numerous other outlets. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Dr. Pryor, thank you so much for joining me today on the Digital Public Square. As we get started, can you tell us a little bit about what prompted your interest in literature and some of the stories, kind of the background story behind this new set of literary guides to these classics? Yeah, well, I I can't really point to anything that prompted my interest in literature because my love of reading goes back to some of my earliest memories. I mean, my mother read to me and one of my, you know, from being an infant and one of my earliest memories is just learning how to read on my own, read a Dr. Seuss book. And so I always had uh, my nose in a book, as they say. And so I was always a reader and I actually didn't know until I had already uh, arrived at college majoring in something else that you could study literature seriously um, and academically. And so I switched to becoming an English major and went into a PhD program to get my doctorate in English. And so it's just been a lifelong love affair with with reading, but in particular, you know, the, the older books. And the the series uh, from B&H, uh, 
I've got to give credit where credit is due. B&H approached me about doing this series. It was their idea to put together a series of classics that would introduce uh, new readers to these classics and in particular introduce Christian readers uh, to these classics in a way that would, you know, from a biblical worldview that would equip and enrich um, Christian readers as they approached uh, some of these texts. And so it was, I think, a great idea. And uh, I'm glad that they had it and glad I was able to work with them to do this and to serve the church in this way. Um, Because one other part of my story is that um, growing up loving books and loving the life of the mind and imagination and then going on to get my PhD in literature, I was a Christian from, you know, about four or five years of age, but it wasn't until the end of my PhD program where I began to first of all, recognize the need to integrate my love of literature with my Christian faith and then begin to understand how to do that. I had for so long saw those two things as separate. And I I thought even for a long time that I had to choose between the life of the mind and books and the church. I, I didn't think they went together. And so in God's like wonderful irony and vision and power. I just never would have imagined that he would use, let me use my love of literature to serve the church. I just never would have guessed that in a million years. So, Well, know that I I really appreciate not only these uh, specific volumes, but really all of your work. You've been such an influence on me and kind of pushing me and challenging me because I know for a lot of people, reading is difficult at times. I mean, we have a thousand things going on or feels like our lives are going at a mile a minute. So reading for a lot of people is challenging, but even reading fiction is not always at the top of list for people when they're saying, hey, I want to start reading books. And I think this is especially true for Christians, unfortunately. So why is it so important for Christians to be reading fiction and specifically some of these older works of fiction that you chose for the series? Yeah, this is such an important question, and and I do I want to start by confessing um, that for me in the past you know ten or so years reading has become more difficult. I mean I feel my attention span shrinking as I spend more time online. So this that struggle is real, and so I'm thankful for that foundation I had going back many years of just of living in a world before digital media and and reading. I have to draw on that so much these days. But reading fiction or or really any literature like poetry or drama is basically it it forms us more than informs us and that's something that we really push against in our culture today we we're so pragmatic and so utilitarian and we get on twitter we get on facebook we read essays and blogs and newspapers for information. Um, We're an information age, right? And so the idea of sitting down with words that aren't necessarily giving us new information, I mean, most stories do give us some new information, but that's not what they're there for. It's the words are arranged and constructed in a way that forms us because they are they're unfolding a story. They're using words in an artistic way that might be different from the way we might use the same word in conversation. They're revealing character and um, developing ethical dilemmas. And we're making watching characters make decisions or make m- mistakes. Uh, and we're judging and analyzing and interpreting. That's what happens when we read literature. 
we aren't just getting facts and information as we do in most of our other readings. So it actually forms the way that we think and it forms our decision-making and our perspective when we read words that take us on a journey rather than just giving us the facts. Yeah, I think that's one of the beautiful things about scripture as well. I mean, scripture is, most of it is narrative, it's stories. And so obviously the Lord is telling us something about ourselves and who we are and how we're created in his images that we're story people. And so I find it a slightly ironic at times that the Bible is so much narrative and literature, but at the times we seem to have, we kind of have hesitation digging into some fiction at times. I think often, I was writing earlier this summer about the wisdom literature and how we're often driven towards a lot of the teaching elements in Paul. But the Bible is such a rich collection of literature. And I think that's even reflective in just how we're created and how we're to be formed, as you were saying, in light of literature. I know one of the things that I really appreciate about this whole series is how beautiful the volumes are. Uh, I think there are six, there are four currently out, and there's two more that are coming out in the spring. But the volumes themselves are just really well done. And even a lot of the resources that you put in these kind of introductions and guides, and I know one of the things I appreciate is you say no spoilers in the introduction, uh, but you give us some general themes and things. They're just beautifully designed and really well crafted. And I wanted to ask, I, I come from a communications background kind of before shifting into ethics and philosophy. Why is it so important for you and for the team as you are crafting these new volumes of these classics for them to be aesthetically beautiful? Thank you for noticing that. Um, and that really was an important part of the whole project. I mean, classics are in the public domain. I've chosen works that are in the public domain. You can go on Amazon, and if you put in any one of these titles, you can find lots of editions of them. You can find, you know, good cheap paperback editions that are put out by Oxford or Penguin. And those are what I've usually used in my classroom teaching. They're small, they're inexpensive, but they always contain spoilers in the introductions. Um, and I often forget to tell my students, don't read the introductions until afterwards, which is part of why I wrote my introductions the way I did. But you also can go on Amazon, and a lot of people have found this the hard way and find actually editions that are just, you know, facsimiles. They're very, very cheap and really awful. And you have to be careful. So the point is that there are many, many editions of these volumes already out there. So if I was going to do this, I wanted to not only include the information that would help readers, the introductions, the footnotes, and uh, the questions, but I wanted to produce something that would be a pleasure to hold and to read. And because they are supposed to be reader-friendly, you know, the font is larger than, than you would find in, in most uh, cheaper editions. And so I've been so pleased with the way um, B&H shared that vision with me, and it's been uh, fun to, you know, to pick out the colors and the, the cover designs. It's been a, a real team effort, and um, I'm just pleased with the results and pleased that people like you noticed that. So they are beautiful. And I didn't even know they were going to put the ribbon bookmarker in there and um, the quality paper. So this is just, they're wonderful for any reader, and they're also wonderful to give as gifts. So I would encourage that. 
Yeah, it reminds me of, and I think you've said this before, of Marshall McLuhan's The Medium is the Message and how the medium that something's communicated in really speaks not only to the value of the message, but even to the the truthfulness of the message as well. Um, and so obviously in terms of the Bible, we, we prize like high quality Bibles. Um, it reminds us of the truth and the value of them. And I think it's very similar with this older literature. Um, I know you're probably familiar with the French sociologist and theologian Jacques Ellul. Um, he's been very influential in my life, but his Technological Society, which is his most influential book, even though it's one of his older ones, I got caught in that, actually, what you were talking about on going on Amazon and buying one of the cheap editions. Oh, there's a paperback. And I grabbed it and I got it. It was a mass market paperback. and It was the cheapest paper you've ever seen. But the font was so small because they were trying to compact it into this tiny little size. It was basically unreadable. So I ended up returning it and then having to go. And I went and found one of the old hardback editions uh, from the 60s. Um, so it was, I was a, kind of a rare find, but I was able to do it. And it's so much of a more enjoyable read uh, when you have something that is uh, really well done, the hardback, the fonts and all of that. So yeah, I very much appreciated that. And I, I appreciate the work and the talents that uh, the B&H team putting uh, in on these volumes as well. I know in each of the volumes, you include a section about reading the classics as a Christian, um, kind of speaking to some of the worldview questions, some of the moral and ethical questions that these kind of older pieces of literature help us to navigate. So how does reading classic pieces like this help us to understand contemporary culture? I think it often we think they're so far away, they don't understand the challenges we're facing today. So how do these older authors help us to really help to shed a light on some of the more contemporary issues and challenges that we're facing today? Hmm. Well, first of all, um, what makes any work of literature a classic or a great book is that it stands the test of time. And it stands the test of time because it speaks to universal truths about the human condition. And that is true whether the author was a Christian or not, or, you know, that's just simply um, part of what makes a great work a great work. And so there's that basic sort of foundation. A great work of literature is going to reveal universal, eternal truths about the human condition. Uh, and there are many such books that do that. Beyond that, a specific work and the ones that I've chosen to serve the church in this way so that not only do they read a classical work, but they, I can help readers think about how this work can help us think as Christians about the world we live in. These works do that. I, I think they do it in a number of ways. For example, my least popular book in this series is Heart of Darkness, which is uh, a difficult, dark read about the colonial period in, in Africa and the atrocities that were done not only to um, Africans, but also the way Europeans um, became uncivilized and barbaric through the treatment of fellow human beings that they perpetrated on them. And that work, I think, as difficult as it is to read, because it's about some other time and some other place and some other people, it allows us to look at issues we still have to grapple with, but in a sideways way, you know, in the same way that Jesus told parables to throw the truth kind of alongside uh, the story. It allows us to look at hard truths that we might not be able to see directly. You know, it says Emily Dickinson said, tell the truth, but tell it slant. Um, the sun is too bright to look in directly. Now I'm paraphrasing her. Um, but these stories, whether it's something about something as dark and evil as what's portrayed in Heart of Darkness, 
or something as light and satirical as Austin's sense and sensibility about human relationships, um, not just male-female relationships, but all our relationships. When we look at something sideways, it actually allows us, we're more open to seeing the application in our own lives. Um, again, another great example of that from the Bible is, is Nathan's confrontation of King David in his, you know, adultery and murder. Um, he, you know, King David couldn't see the truth in his own life for himself, but when he saw it in a parallel form in a story, he was able to recognize that. And so these great works of literature just you know, they're, they're delights in themselves because they're wonderful stories, but like all good stories, they kind of invite us um, to see the same themes and problems and dilemmas uh, and character issues in our own lives. Yeah, it reminds me of um, Alan Jacobs' latest book, Breaking Bread with the Dead, and I really enjoyed that. Uh, as he's He writes a lot on technology issues and how we kind of live in this age of information overload but one of the things that he was pointing out and very similar to what you were saying is that often some of these older works help us to see our blind spots, to see the things. Now, they have their own blind spots, even non older nonfiction. They obviously have their blind spots, but they help us to see our blind spots differently because they're not inhabiting the same world with the same pressures and tensions and um, all the things that we face today. And so, no, I totally echo that. And that's one of the reasons that Especially on this podcast, we've talked a lot about the value of older books and their usefulness today, not just for their usefulness, but also their beauty and how they shape and form us. One of the questions that I have just about the whole series in general is why these six of all of the classic literature that you could have chosen? Obviously, these are in the public domain and obviously they're formative. But why these six specifically? As you said, some are maybe less popular than others. Um, but why these six volumes? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. And of course, I chose each one on its own merits, but also chose them sort of in tandem with one another because I wanted a series at the end that was somewhat diverse in its um, the kinds of stories that it covers and um, the themes and topics that are covered. Of course, choosing only works in the public domain does eliminate anything that's, you know, contemporary, that's, um, which includes more minority authors. And I also had to limit it to um, books that I know about, right? My own expertise, which happens to be in 18th and 19th century British literature and the novel specifically. And so I chose works that I know well, that I love. One American work that's coming out, The Scarlet Letter, token American literature. But then even within that, like, for example, when I, I knew, of course, I would choose Jane Austen and I had to choose, well, which, which Jane Austen novel should I do? Because I love them all. My favorite and most people's favorite is Pride and Prejudice. So I didn't want to choose that one because I wanted to stretch people a little bit. And so I chose Sense and Sensibility um, because it also is a wonderful novel. But I think that novel specifically has something to offer the church in our current moment because we do struggle with the tension between sense and sensibility or roughly speaking, reason and emotion. We tend, even as a church, to gravitate more toward one of rather than the other, towards sort of dry doctrine and rationality or toward the, the experiential and emotional. And that's what that novel really is about. And the novel demonstrate the truth that as human beings need to balance both of those things in our nature. And I think the church also needs to balance both, you know, 
the rational, reasonable aspects of the Christian faith and the experiential, um, aesthetic aspects of of the faith. They're they're both important parts of what it means to be a Christian and to be a church. Yeah, it reminds me this past semester I was teaching worldview analysis uh, to undergrads, and one of the books that I had them read was Jamie Smith's uh, How Not to Be Secular. And we we interacted on Twitter a little bit about you were teaching, I think, a seminar, a senior seminar on a secular age and reading through Charles Taylor. One of the questions that has come up a lot, not only this semester, but just even in the last decade or more, is the value of the concept of worldview. And you've used that term a few different times throughout the podcast so far. And so I wanted to see if you could unpack that. I mean, in light of the last question and talking about kind of an over-rationality, like it's all about rational truths and dry doctrine or this kind of experiential, we get into, I know this is kind of a live question in some sense, there's a lot of debate around the concept of worldview, the value of the language of worldview. Um, So I just wanted to see if you could kind of unpack that, especially in light of literature, especially in light of uh, Charles Taylor and a secular age, just helping us to understand maybe the concept a little bit better and some of the strengths of it, but also some of the weaknesses of this type of worldview analysis or worldview concept. Well, I have a lot to say about this question. So, but I, it's a really good and important question. Christian worldview changed my life as a young Christian adult. It happened again in in the midst of my PhD program, where I was wrestling with with how my love of literature can fit with my love of God. And, you know, the way that we generally define worldview, it is, as Jamie Smith says, and I know some people are pushing back against this, but it really is a sort of cerebral intellectual approach to the faith. We, you know, we answer the questions who, you know, where did we come from? What's gone wrong with the world and how do we fix it? That is intellectual. Well, it changed my life because I, I my love language is the intellect, right? So it captured for me what I love about everything. It captured my loves, as again, Jamie Smith writes about in his um, cultural anthropology series, is you know, desiring the kingdom, imagining the kingdom, awaiting uh, the king, and you are what you love. I think he's right that we are what we love. And for me, I loved answering those kinds of questions. So for me, worldview did um, form me and speak to my desires and loves. But what I've realized along the way after twenty more than 20 years of teaching and Christian young people in Christian institutions is that I can teach them how to think like a Christian. And I, I've tried to do that. But that doesn't necessarily change their loves. That doesn't form them. And so, as Smith says, worldview is not enough. Um, Now, I know because of the ongoing debate and discussion that's, you know, erupted in the past few weeks, you know, some would say, well, no, well, worldview does include what we love. Well, traditionally, it hasn't really. It has been more about you know, information rather than formation. So maybe we need to tweak it a little bit. And I do think, again, this goes back to one of your first questions, reading literature forms us more than informing us. And so I think my worldview has been shaped as much by reading so widely and seeing the world through the eyes and perspectives of all of these other characters and their experiences that formative process has shaped my worldview as much as kind of answering those questions that, you know, has traditionally been said to comprise Christian worldview. 
Yeah, one of the texts that I, you see this pretty dramatic in uh, James Sire's Universe Next Door. So the first five editions of his book, he has like seven worldview questions. And the last edition that was published right after his death, that sixth edition actually has an, an additional question, which is what kind of attitudes or posture of the heart. And so he's bringing in that kind of emotional aspect, the, the heart aspect. The, he's referencing Jamie Smith's work and things like that. And so that's where I'm even starting to see a shift even amongst my students is that there is this kind of it's head and heart. It's the whole person. Um, and especially as we talk about the nature of worldview, and I still think it's a very valuable concept. I don't want to just jettison it. Is maybe we do need to reevaluate it or reevaluate maybe sometimes the way that we go about teaching worldview um, is to make sure that it captures the whole person and then it's focused on the that transformation and the formation, not just information download, uh, which I think is especially interesting. We don't have time to talk about it in the, the age of information in some sense, is that we're having this conversation to say it's not just information that's forming us. More information doesn't always make you a better person in some sense. It's So in my classes, I'm trying to teach them how to think, not just how to think like a Christian. It's how do you think and process with the whole person, with the mind and the heart as we process some of these really difficult challenges and think about them as Christians in light of these kind of worldview questions or, or these um, big truths about who God is, how he's created us in his image, and how he's called us to live in this world. One of the volumes in the series, to get back to the series a little bit, one of the volumes that I'm very excited about reading is Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. I told you before we got on the podcast, um, years ago, I was exposed to Shelley's Frankenstein. I listened to about half of it and realized this book isn't what I, I thought it was uh, growing up when you hear about Frankenstein or you picture Frankenstein, especially around thank or Halloween, not Thanksgiving. Uh, but when you're thinking about it, uh, the book's a little bit different. And so I wanted to see if you could give us just kind of a brief introduction to Shelley and who she is. Um, and then also some of the main themes of the work, maybe to kind of whet the appetites of people to go and purchase that maybe for the holiday season. Yes, I would love to talk about um, Shelley and Frankenstein. And and please, everyone, if you know one thing, as you just said, Jason, know that the novel is nothing like the popular culture adaptations of it. Um, the novel is, is deeply philosophical and theological, asks all kinds of important questions. Um, and what's fascinating about it, to, to bring a little bit of Shelley's life into it, is that Mary Shelley was a romantic, a capital R romantic. She married one of the quintessential romantic poets, um, Percy Bysshe Shelley. Their lives were, as, as I talk about in, in the introduction, their lives were characterized by promiscuity and libertinism and political liberalism, all of the things that we might associate with, with the romantics. And yet, Mary Shelley seemed to not fully embrace that lifestyle that her husband really kind of pressured onto her. She was questioning it and interrogating it. In fact, she, almost all of her children, minus one, were lost to death in their infancy or their childhood because of the kind of lifestyle that she and Shelley lived. And so she carried the burden of this pain and this suffering. And when she was a mere teenager, um, in the midst of this, she wrote this novel about a young man who isn't yet a doctor, he's actually a, a student, um, who becomes enamored with the idea of bringing the dead back to life. And, and so he attempts to do this and he succeeds. And the story isn't just about this 
creation. It's also about the relationship of the, this creation to his creator. Um, it's poignant. Um, again, the, the novel has lots of, of, of dialogues. It has lots of stories within the stories, um, lots of layers to it. And um, it can be difficult to read in the sense that it just consists of a, a lot of long speeches um, about uh, the nature of, of suffering, the, the nature of, of God and his relationship to his creation. So anyone who reads it, um, I think we'll be surprised at how different it is from sort of the distorted portrayals of it in popular culture. But as I indicate in the introduction, um, the themes of evil, suffering, God's relationship to humanity, and um, our need for not just love, but just companionship are themes that we still wrestle with today. Yeah, that's one of the things that not only in this book, but some of the others as well, is just it's helping us to wrestle with a lot of the moral and ethical questions of the day. But you're doing so through the lens and under the guidance of some older figures, as we said earlier, kind of help us to see past our blind spots and to help us think better. As we start to end our time together, one of the questions I wanted to ask you is especially in light of technology. So we hear a lot about technology. We hear about how it's forming and shaping us. Um, kind of the nature of technology itself. We're seeing that a lot in a lot of the conversations surrounding big tech or privacy or whatever, is that you see a lot of the formative aspects of technology. So why is cultivating a, a habit of reading books, but specifically older work, such an important discipline for us today in light of the immediacy and kind of the growing dependence that we have on technology today? Mm -hmm. So one of the things that we need to think about when we read anything, really, and, and we've touched on this already, is form and content. So when we're talking about content, like even the content of a work of literature, as, as we've, we've talked about these, these stories that I've edited and, and, and what their themes are and what some of the ideas are, that's part of the content. But the form relates to the way those words are laid out, the way the story is revealed, the way that words are used artistically. And form also relates to the physical form that those words are delivered in. And as Christians, just as part of our being part of modern day culture, we tend to emphasize content more than form. But as you, you know, you quoted McLuhan earlier, the medium is the message. And so these old stories presented in the form of a book, and, and I may step on some toes here, um, but I do believe that there is a difference between reading, you know, a physical book in your hand versus using your finger to slide the words across the screen. The book kind of makes more demands on us. It, it encourages us to slow down and engage and have a more sensory experience. And so if we think about form, as, as I believe we should, because really that's that's what the incarnation is, right? It is, it is God becoming, taking human form, the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. If we think about form, even a little bit, I think it unlocks for us the power and importance of old books that have withstood the test of time that even might be something that we can hold in our hand um, and read in a tactile way. And there's really just nothing better to do that than, than an old book. Yeah. Just a few weeks ago, we had uh, Alan Noble from OBU, and he was talking about his new book, You Are Not Your Own, which is a 
was a really fascinating conversation. So for listeners' sake, I encourage them to go back and listen to that. But we talked about Elul, the inherent nature of technology towards efficiency. And I think especially with what you were saying is, um, I'm a technology guy in that sense. Um, I love ethics and philosophy of tech, but I'm also not a big ebook fan. I'm not saying that they're bad. I'm not saying that they're not efficient. I'm not saying that they don't have their limited usefulness. But again, I prefer the tactile kind of thing. And in some ways, it's just pushing back on the efficiency. We're always looking how to make things faster, cheaper, better, quicker. And sometimes the most formative aspects and the ways that we're formed best is through the old inefficient means of reading and you know going to church and having the the inefficiency of not being able to watch it on TV in some senses to go gather with the body of Christ to be able to sing songs and worship and be formed and be part of the body, um, and so that's obviously a whole conversation we can have uh, maybe next time um, about kind of incarnation in terms of transhumanism, a lot of these questions surrounding technology. Um, but to wrap it up today, I know I'm really excited about digging into this, um, specifically Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, especially in light of everything we've talked about today. But of all of the volumes, there's four out now and you have two coming out in the spring. Which one would you encourage people to start with um, in terms of, I know it's kind of like picking your favorites in some sense, but what, what books would you encourage people to start with and or what are some other books that you might recommend folks to check out, especially if they're interested in learning more about some of the formative aspects or worldview things we've talked about today, or just kind of the value of literature in general? Well, it's actually fairly easy for me to answer the first question because I do have a favorite in the series, my personal favorite, and it's Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. And I think that is the one that, that people should read of all of them. Uh, especially if they're newer to reading classic literature, because Jane Eyre is, even though it's one of the, the biggest books in the series, it's the most accessible because it's written in an authentic and realistic sort of narrative voice. And I also want to make sure that people know that it's not just a love story. Um, it is actually a an allegory of the Christian soul finding its way in the modern world and remaining true to the Christian faith. That's what the story is about. So it's for equally for men and for women is uh, just a read that really draws you in and is probably the easiest one to read in that way because the language is so close to our own sort of natural language. Um, and then, of course, any others in the series. I write the introductions with no spoilers and, and to help and assist people to kind of approach the text in ways that they might get the most out of it. I definitely want to mention a nonfiction work that's one of my most formative ones and, and touches on the things we've been talking about here. And that is Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death. I mean, it's an old classic, but especially in terms of thinking about media and form and content and how the medium is the message, um, that's a very uh, important work. It's written, again, in an accessible way. It's written for you know a popular audience. Um, and that's a book that really, I think, really did change my life in some ways more than anything else. And I'll just put a shout out for my... my my first book, which, uh, which you know, is sort of was before um, people knew who I was, but it, it gives the story that I've alluded to a couple of times about the way that literature formed me and uh, formed my faith. And that's booked literature in the soul of me, which is just sort of a literary and spiritual memoir. But I talk about a lot of my other favorite works of literature in that book. So that would be another one that people might read to help them see how literature can be so formative in our spiritual and intellectual life. 
Yeah, and we'll make sure to link to all of those in the show notes for uh, listeners to grab, especially with the holidays coming up. Uh, these can be really good stocking stuffers and gifts. Uh, so I encourage people to grab those, especially as things slow down a little bit for some throughout the holiday season and even into the new year. Um, I, I would highly recommend folks to grab the books that you referenced, including the series. Um, but Dr. Parr, I just wanted to say thank you. I appreciate your ministry. I appreciate your service, especially at Southeastern Seminary, and for the time you've taken to join us today on the Digital Public Square. I've really enjoyed our conversation and look forward to staying connected. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Dr. Pryor and learn more about her books in this new series, as well as the recommended resources she mentioned in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the Weekly Tech email briefing each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology today, as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe at jasonbacker.com slash weeklytech. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week.